Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have a lot of stuff to cover. First, we have the confirmation that the KDE spin of Fedora will indeed drop X11 support when Plasma 6 releases for Fedora 40. We have some giant Wayland fixes for the NVIDIA proprietary drivers that should fix most issues that people actually have. Uh, we have the web DRM or web integrity API that is basically dead. We have the release of the Linux kernel 6.6 and a lot more cool stuff. So as always, all the things that I used to make this show are in the show notes. There are links to all the articles I used. There are also links on how you can support the show if you want it to keep going. And well, I guess let's get going. So first, it is now confirmed. The KDE spin of Fedora will drop X11 entirely as they move to Plasma 6 for Fedora 40. Plasma 6 doesn't drop X11 itself. They only recommend that people use Wayland because all the work they do is now focused on supporting Wayland better. While KDE 5.27 is decent with Wayland, it's not the best experience. Plasma 6 will bring a lot more fixes, especially for when the KDE compositor crashes. For now, it takes down every single app that is open. This won't be the case in Plasma 6. That's the single biggest change ever. But they don't drop X11. They just say, hey, distributions, you should probably just use Wayland because X11 is dead and we're not going to support it. Uh, And so that's what Fedora is actually doing. They had submitted a proposal to the steering committee uh, that had to be voted on, and it's been accepted by a landslide, which means that in April 2024, when Fedora 40 releases, X11 will be done for KDE users. The packages will not be available. You won't be able to run KDE on Fedora with X11. Now, some members of the steering committee have some reservations. They proposed leaving X11 as an option, but they also remarked that it would create maintenance costs and additional complexity to maintain this whole stack. And so they were okay with dropping it, saying that there's always the option to add back the X11 related packages in case there's a major problem popping up during the beta phase, because Plasma 6 will release at the end of February. So if they start implementing the stable version of Plasma 6, they still have basically two months to test if everything is okay. And they probably will start testing way before that uh, by using beta versions of Plasma 6. So they have ample time to detect various problems and potentially add back uh, optional X11 packages for Plasma 6 because they will exist. Plasma 6 doesn't drop X11. Now, the equivalent proposal for Fedora GNOME, the basic Fedora Workstation Edition, uh, to drop X11 as well hasn't been accepted yet. It's still debated, but I would be surprised if it wasn't accepted as well after the KD-related one was adopted so easily. I would be very surprised. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's, the, if it's the same people on the steering committee for Fedora Workstation or the Fedora KDE Spin, uh, but if it is, I don't see any reason why they would elect to keep X11 support uh, in the GNOME edition when they drop it in the X in the KDE edition, seeing as GNOME is a bit further along the Wayland support path than KDE, granted, because they have a lot less features as well. So, well, that's done. That's one more nail in X11's coffin. But more importantly, without gloating over people moving to Wayland, because that's a personal decision and people might not want to do that, it still provides a giant test bed for Wayland to get even more users, to get more testing, 
and more bug fixes. So in my opinion, it's a very good choice. It will mean that more people will encounter potential bugs with Wayland, and it does mean that these bugs will absolutely have to be fixed very fast because, well, that's the default and that's the only thing that is supported. So I think it's a very, very good thing. Now, still on the topic of KDE, Kwin, the window manager and compositor, has received a merge request to enable HDR to work on KDE in video games only for now. So this is basically the first bricks for the Wayland Color Management Protocol and its implementation for KDE. If you don't know, there is a protocol being worked to, to add to all the Wayland protocols to actually support HDR, mixed HDR and SDR content on the same display, but also full screen HDR and more generally color management. So Linux is a more interesting target, let's say, uh, for professionals who need to work with HDR, SDR, color management tools uh, and generally create graphical things. So this is being worked on, but the, the protocol isn't stabilized yet. It's not finished, it's not completed, and it's still being worked on. And KDE seems to be at the forefront of this with Valve as well uh, for the Steam Deck and SteamOS because they already have uh, an HDR implementation. Uh, and so basically by writing this implementation, they are providing a big solid ground to write the Wayland protocol uh, further and to... to enable this set of features. So this first implementation is very bare bones. It just targets HDR for video games and it does require a bunch of additional stuff, uh, Vulkan extensions, a environment variable when you open GameScope because you also need GameScope and you need a Git build of GameScope, which is SteamOS's compositor if you don't know, uh, because that's what is basically providing most of the support for HDR because it's already written. Your monitor will obviously also have to support HDR. And apparently some games are already working with this new implementation, like Cyberpunk 2077, but other games don't because some games basically check with your monitor if they actually handle HDR. And to do that, they look at the EDID file that is provided by your operating system and by the monitor uh, to see if there is sufficient HDR capabilities in your monitor. And for now, what's been written for Kwin and Gamescope don't support that. So some games will try to parse a file, they won't be able to read it, and so they will not enable HDR. But it's still a nice start to supporting all of this. And I guess that they're starting with video games because it is one of the biggest use cases for HDR. There's basically movies and there's video games. And... It's probably also because running a full screen app in HDR, so moving the whole display to an HDR mode is easier than mixing HDR and SDR content in different windows. Now, that's just my guess. I do not know how this thing works, but I would expect this to be the reasoning. Like you start with a full screen app and once you've got all the basics done and once you have basically the protocol set, then you move on to enabling HDR and SDR at the same time on the same display. So pretty cool to see this going on. And this means that it's probably progressing faster than I was expecting. Maybe we'll see full HDR support during 2024. It might happen. Now, still on Wayland, we have a big update to the proprietary NVIDIA driver. So it's version 
5.45.29.02. Their, their numbering scheme is just way too complex. Uh, so these new drivers provide support for 10 bit per component over HDMI, so better color support and better image support. There's a bunch of new Vulkan extensions added, but what's more important is there are a lot of Wayland-focused improvements to the point that I would say that these drivers basically should fix 99% of problems people have with Wayland and X Wayland on NVIDIA. So first, these drivers add support for the night light and night color features of GNOME and KDE. These are the features that let you dim automatic, well, change the color temperature of your screen automatically as time goes on. So you can have a more yellowish tint at night and a more bluish tint in the day. So you don't get that, that much blue light in your eyes uh, when it's night and you're supposed to go to bed. This was one major missing piece. This is now done. They also support VR displays. If the Wayland compositor supports DRM leasing, basically how VR displays work is your your compositor decides which display has access to the to the drivers to the direct rendering manager drivers and so virtual reality displays need to have drm leasing so they can temporarily become the main display because ba they basically have two displays they need full access to the drivers nvidia proprietary drivers did not support that on wayland now they do so you will be able to for example play uh, with steam vr uh, probably on, I think KDE supports DRM leasing, or maybe it's Mutter. One of the two, at least, I'm sure, supports it and added it recently. So you will be able to play VR games using, for example, Steam VR and Above Index on Wayland. They also added support for variable refresh rate under Wayland, which is very cool. They added VDPAU support on X Wayland, which is basically an API that lets you decode videos and media. Uh, you could not use your GPU to do that using XYLAN before with NVIDIA drivers. Now you can if your app accesses VDPAU. Of course, it's a pretty old API. And they also added Prime Render Offload for Vulkan apps under Wayland. Prime Render Offload is basically when you're running a hybrid graphics laptop. You're mainly running the Intel integrated GPU or the AMD integrated GPU. But some apps you can elect to run using the NVIDIA GPU. This works for most applications, but it didn't work for Vulkan-specific applications, on NVIDIA drivers at least, and now it will work as well. So that's a lot of improvements to how NVIDIA drivers handle Wayland and X Wayland, and I would say it's it should fix pretty much every major problem that NVIDIA has listed in their own document. I made a recent video on the state of Wayland, uh, and I talked about the various problems NVIDIA had. They have a document on their website. You can find it in that Wayland dedicated video on my channel. They have a document listing all the problems that they have. And it looks like they mostly are all solved. The only ones that aren't is because basically compositors don't support the feature either. So they haven't implemented it in the drivers because, well, it wouldn't be supported by anything anyway. Now, on top of that, these new drivers also uh, provide updates to the open source kernel modules that NVIDIA releases. And these open source kernel modules are now considered certified for GeForce GPUs and workstation GPUs. So there should be improvements to the open source code that they provide. There's also experimental support for runtime D3 power management for desktop GPUs, which means that they can now go to sleep using way less power 
but without completely turning off. So they can resume faster, they can work faster, but also they'll use less power when being idle. Probably useful uh, for integrated uh, hybrid devices. And there's also experimental support for frame buffer consoles provided by the NVIDIA drivers, uh, which should come in handy when you're trying to restore a system or rescue a system uh, where you won't have to like fiddle with mode set and whatever. So basically, these drivers fix most of what was missing as far as I could tell. It should be a huge boon to using NVIDIA on Linux, especially with Wayland. So it's great to see NVIDIA finally putting in the work to support our current desktop stack, which let's be honest, current desktop stack is Wayland, uh, that that's what everyone is working on. So let's hope it continues and they can finally tackle all the remaining small problems. So every GPU, well, every everyone that wants any GPU vendor can have a good experience. And now it's time I tell you about our sponsor. And as always, this is Thunderbird. You all know about it. It's an email client and calendar client, and it handles contacts and to-do lists, and it has a lot of extensions. If you used it in the past, you might think that it looks like an old application, but it doesn't anymore. They updated recently uh, to version 115, codenamed Supernova, and it gives you a ton of choices to customize your interface. So it still supports the modules you know and love, but now you can change the interface density, you can move to a cards view for your email list, you can have the preview pane wherever you want, you can customize the header bar with all the buttons you want for each view, for email, for contacts, for calendars, the views are way cleaner, the contacts list is much better laid out, it's basically a brand new app, and they have completely restarted development as well on a lot of other projects, uh, notably the Android app, which is going to come soon, and will at some point have sync with the desktop client, so all your tags and organization will be synced between your phone and your desktop client. They also are starting to work on an iOS client, it's just a fantastic application. It has replaced every single tool I used for calendar, emails and contacts. I used to use Geary and, and Gnome Calendar, uh, then Kmail and Korganizer, then Contact. Thunderbird replaced them all. It's just the best thing available on Linux for personal information management. So if you want to download it, I left a link to it in the description of this show, in the show notes, uh, and it's available on FlatHub as well, so it's an easy one-click install. So check it out using the link in the show notes. Now, still on the Wayland side of things, but let's say le less uh, impressive than what we've seen on the NVIDIA side, there's GNOME 45.1, which is a small point update to GNOME 45, but it brings improvements to Mutter, the GNOME compositor, and so to Wayland support. So there are a few other fixes for the GNOME desktop, uh, scrolling over sliders has been improved, the recording indicator uh, when using light mode now looks better, there are a few other things. But more importantly, there's better support for Wayland and xWayland. First, it will only enable the XDG portal, so the things that let apps communicate with each other and apps communicate with your desktop with retaining when retaining a lot of security because they can't just give access to everything they give access to the portal which then gives them what they accessed uh, way more secure so this support will only be enabled when x wayland isn't running on a nested compositor uh, to avoid breaking things it will now discard monitor configurations using fractional scaling when they are unable to display anything. So if you bork your fractional scaling by, I don't know, trying to scale it to 500% and it's completely unusable, uh, then it won't retain it. So you won't have an unusable system <laughs> for a while. Uh, and it also now can apply, apply track point settings, uh, which is cool. 
and it can run XYLAN in headless mode with the NVIDIA drivers. And still on XYLAN, but not necessarily on GNOME, uh, there's a merge request that will now let users choose whether to use OpenGL or OpenGL ES to provide hardware acceleration to XYLAN. Uh, this is something that might seem completely inconsequential, but a lot of devices have smaller integrated GPUs that have much better support for OpenGL ES than regular OpenGL. And so by forcing them to use OpenGL by default, you generally had pretty bad performance. Using OpenGL ES might be a way better solution for a lot of these devices, and they should have much better GPU-focused performance for XYLAN applications. So it's nice to see all that work going on on a display server, its protocol and its implementation. This is not something that we have seen on X11 at all. So it feels really nice to have some very concrete improvements uh, to, to how Wayland is supported and to how good our experience with it will be in the future. Now, Google fortunately decided to not move forward with their much maligned Web Integrity API, which was also called Web DRM by most people because that's what it effectively was. Uh, this API meant that websites could have refused to serve users of certain browsers or certain devices because these browsers or devices would have had to provide a token that would provide a lot of information to the website to know if Maybe this device has been hacked, maybe it's untrustworthy, maybe it's running on an OS we don't want to support. Uh, and this specific token could probably also have been used to identify individual users and their devices because a combination of browser, browser version, extensions added to the browser, containment or sandbox around that, the OS it runs on, the hardware it runs on, it's basically fingerprinting. So this token could have been used to identify specific users. The stated goal of this API was to filter out bot traffic, to detect phishing campaigns, to detect cheating on web-based games, to detect compromised devices and everything like that. Basically to provide a security framework for websites and browsers. But it also would have opened the doors to basically blocking certain users from using certain websites. For example, a website could say, you know what, we don't want no Linux users in here. Uh, and if your token was providing the fact that you were using Linux, it's not your user agent, it's another token that the browser would have to generate. And you know they wouldn't have been able to cheat with that. Or if your browser decided not to provide a token, the website could have said, nah, you can't watch it, no way. Or a website could say, uh, adblock extensions aren't safe. Uh, if you have adblock, you can't see the website at all. Uh, and there was nothing you could have done about it. They could probably even have detected various configurations on your network itself. So maybe stuff like Pi-hole could have been blocked. Basically, it was just opening the door to a lot of potential abuse. Fortunately, Google stated that this API is no longer being considered by the Chrome team. Meaning this API is pretty much abandoned because the Chrome team, well, Google, uh, was the only one, the only company pushing for this. Basically everybody else working on a web browser was against it. So fortunately it's gone. Uh, they have turned it into a new API called Android WebView Media Integrity API, which that's a mouthful. Uh, and it does basically the exact same thing but specifically for web views embedded in Android apps that are used to play video and audio. And that's not really that much of a problem on Android apps because they already have this sort of integrity verification when they're being published to the Play Store. 
So I don't think this is going to be an issue. Applications that don't go through the Play Store will probably not have to conform with this API because they don't access Google services, so they don't have a problem. So it's a big win for the open web. This API had a lot of potential for mass tracking, mass surveillance, restricting access to certain operating systems. It would undeniably have been used in various harmful ways. So it's good that it is gone and that it won't see the light of day. Pretty nice. Now, in other good news, we have the release of the Linux kernel version 6.6, and it is a big, big update. There are a lot of performance updates for our systems. First, the old CPU scheduler has been completely replaced by the new one, and this one should reduce latency, but also provide much better performance. Basically, what a scheduler does is it takes the operation that your application or your process wants to do, and it attributes it to a CPU core, whether a logical or a physical one, uh, and it stores this information in the CPU cache. The old scheduler basically meant that all operations were fixed to a specific cache and core. Even if another core was freed, the operation could not move to another core and was stuck on the one it was attributed. So if it's in a long queue of operations, but there's another CPU core available, the operation would not have been able to move to that one. With the new scheduler, it can do that, it's more flexible, and so it means that your operations will always use a CPU core that is available and that is relevant to the task that needs to be done. So it should be way faster and have less latency because it means that the operation will be, well, done faster. However, there might be cases where the new scheduler is slower than the old one, and the Linux developers team has said that as soon as someone reports one of these, they will fix them because they don't want to move back to the old one, but they are absolutely open to fix certain workflows if this change is harmful, basically, for these workflows. There's also, in the Linux kernel 6.6, a new event FS subsystem. Uh, this should improve memory efficiency to report kernel events. AMD users get a lot of performance boosts as well. They get dynamic boost control, which means that you will be able to boost just one core of the CPU without boosting the whole CPU. You'll be able to boost just one logical core and not the whole physical core. And so this means you can get the max performance for a single threaded process without waking up a lot of other cores of your CPU. So better performance, but also better battery life because you're not wasting CPU cycles uh, on, on cores that aren't really being used. There's also support for AMD P-States via CPU power in the same sort of line of improving battery life on AMD devices. Basically, your CPU and GPU can go to sleep in deeper states much better and wake up faster, so they should spare your battery. There's also added support in the kernel for Intel Shadow Stack, which is a feature that improves security on Intel, but also on AMD CPUs, despite the name Intel Shadow Stack. Uh, it's meant to improve security against recent attacks that have targeted a lot of CPUs out there. There's also added support for Rumble with the Stadia controller. There's support for the Nvidia Shield controller reporting its own battery life to the kernel, so it's going to be able to be displayed in various interfaces that display that. And there's also support for a lot of Lenovo laptop keyboards that didn't work on Linux at all, and now they do. Plus a bunch of fixes to the various file systems we use to I.O. and stuff like that. So either you will get this 6.6 .6 update from your distro. Generally, if it's not an LTS, you will probably get it. 
uh, or you will have to wait for the next major update to your distro to actually get it. Generally, it's a better idea to stick to the kernel version that your distro provides because they generally add a few patches here and there and fixes here and there to implement certain features that they want. So moving to an unsupported non-distro kernel might break some stuff. But of course, there are some ways to install newer kernels from PPAs and third-party repos if there's something in there that you absolutely want, which I would understand with the kernel 6.6. It's a very, very big update. I know I will probably get it on Tuxedo OS because they tend to be pretty reactive with kernel updates. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that because there's a lot in there that could improve my experience uh, daily. Now, a small tidbit of information. It looks like Discord is now official on Flathub. The company has taken ownership of the Flatpak package that is published on flathub.org. And so it now appears as verified with a little blue check mark, which means that yes, this package is being published by the original developers. Previously, it was just a community maintained package. Uh, so it, you were basically using a third party package or third party build of Discord. That's no longer the case. And hopefully this means we might see improvements to it, uh, maybe for Wayland support, for screen sharing and stuff like that. Stuff that the community couldn't really do in the package themselves. They could just take the Discord website or application that is generally distributed, I think as a deb uh, on Discord's website, uh, and they repackaged it as a flat pack. They couldn't really modify the code. Uh, Discord can, and so can maybe make this package better. Interestingly, this change was announced by Cassidy James Blade, uh, which you might know as uh, he worked as a UX architect at System76, then he worked as the co-founder uh, of Elementary OS, and now he's working at the Endless OS Foundation. And he basically said that he's been trying to volunteer as a Flatpak and Flathub developer advocate to encourage com companies to take ownership of the applications that they have on Linux that might be distributed by the community as third-party Flatpak packages. He's basically encouraging companies to say, hey, you know what? We have this version that works on every single Linux distro out there. The community is maintaining it. Maybe we should just use that as our official package and just help make it better and make sure that every single user can install our stuff in just one click. That's a better thing. So a lot of respect for this kind of work because, well, Flatpak or any other containerized, like multi-distro package format is definitely where we should be going to. Uh, especially for companies that generally only distribute as a deb or just one app image that is generally completely unmaintained and pretty much not the best format out there, let's be honest, or just an RPM or, or like a Todd or Jeezy. They just distribute their stuff in so many weird ways when we have such good packaging formats out there. So I think Flathub is a great place to distribute those and Flatpak is the packaging format to do so. No. Still, the Discord Flatpak might be official, it still doesn't support game activity, it still doesn't support rich presence, and it still can't access every single file in your hard drive, but that's a positive, not a negative. It, it's limited to certain user directories like video, download pictures, and stuff like that. Uh, maybe this will change uh, now that Discord is the official owner of the package, because they could implement support for uh, the file portal, which means that you don't have to limit the directories it has access to. It's the portal that accesses things. And maybe XDG desktop portals might allow uh, to share game activity and rich presence, uh, maybe with native messaging. I'm, I'm not sure this is implemented yet. This is something that is also needed, for example, to support password managers in browsers. It's basically the app talking to the system or another app 
through a specific interaction that lets it send information outside of the sandbox. This still needs to be implemented. Maybe Discord will implement that uh, once uh, this portal actually exists, because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still not implemented uh, in the Flatpak format in itself. Still, pretty good to see companies taking ownership of their packages and getting involved in our modern Linux desktop stack. It will definitely lend more trust to Flatpak if companies actually publish their applications there themselves. And speaking of these packaging formats, the Steam Snap is getting some love as well, and in turn it also helps improve the whole Steam Daemon, well, the whole Snap Daemon and Snap packaging format. Uh, Canonical published a snapped version of Steam for testing, I think it was six or eight months ago, and this allowed them to have a lot of data, a lot of ideas, a lot of testing, and so they have fixed a lot of stuff, not only for Steam, but also for other snaps. Uh, first, the SnapD daemon and its Steam support, let's say, library, can now access external Steam libraries. So games that you might have stored on another disk, on an external hard drive, this is something you could not access before using the Snap version, and now you can. Uh, it also now supports the NVIDIA drivers much better than previously. Uh, it also bundles game mode directly in the Steam Snap, so you can have better performance when running a game. It also bundles Mango HUD, so you can have these nice little performance statistics while you tweak the settings of the game to make sure that it's the best experience possible. And controller support is now on par on the Steam Snap with the Deb version of Steam. They also did a lot of work to better support NVIDIA drivers in the Steam Snap, but this work will also benefit other snaps as well. It's stuff that has been done on the Snap Daemon, not specifically for the Steam Snap, so it should help a lot of applications. Finally, they fixed a bunch of issues for permissions, for certain games not launching at all under the Snap, some Vulkan problems, and more. So, whether you like Snaps or not, it's always interesting when they're using one big app as some sort of giant test bed to improve the whole format. Personally, I will always favor using a flat pack instead of a Snap, if possible, but if Snap can get some fixes and can actually perform and run better than it currently does, so maybe finally be on par with at least Flatpak, and maybe with native dev packages, that's very good, especially for Ubuntu users. I don't hate snaps personally, I just prefer Flatpaks, uh, and if you don't hate snaps either, it's good to see improvements to the whole format, even though it came through improvements to one snap specifically. And in other small tidbits, we have a new storage target mode being worked on for System D. So I know some people do not like System D. You can expect a dedicated video on that exact topic on the channel pretty soon, because I just want to explore why people don't like this, because Linux is the only, probably the only community where people have an opinion on the init daemon of their system. Uh, so it's always interesting to look at. But Systemd will get a storage target mode, which would work in the same way as what macOS provides, uh, in which you can access the internal disk of one computer from another computer. So this new systemd mode would be defined when booting the target device, you would start it in target mode, and then all the NVMe devices from that computer would be exposed on the network and accessible by other computers. 
So if you're wondering why would I want to do that, well, it's super useful to fix a broken install. If your computer doesn't start, then you boot it in target mode, you access the whole operating system in full read-write mode, and you can change the stuff that you changed that makes it basically unbootable or not have a graphical interface. Way easier to do that than to have a live USB, a CH root or whatever. Much easier to do it this way. You could also use it to migrate data from one system to the next without having to copy-paste data onto an external hard drive or a NAS and then recopy it onto the new device. You could just copy directly from the computer you're leaving to the new computer you're going to use. Now, this target mode isn't feature complete yet. It doesn't support authentication. So if you're in target mode, everyone can access every user directory without any password. It doesn't support encryption either, and it's all in read and write mode. There's no read-only mode for now. So basically, when you enable this target mode, anyone can do whatever they want on your disk, unless it's encrypted, in which case it will not be decrypted and nothing will happen. It's not super secure yet, but it's very interesting. I'm pretty sure uh, some distro makers and Linux hardware manufacturers that make their own distros will make good use of that once it's fully ready to develop migration tools to either grab all your data from one of their devices running their distro to a new one or just to help fix problems. It sounds like the sort of thing that Tuxedo OS or Pop OS might support in the future, but any other distro could just implement a nice graphical user interface to help you reboot one device in target mode automatically and to help you connect to that target device on another computer and automatically select the things you want to copy and it would copy them over immediately. It's very nice. I think it's a very good thing. macOS has had that for a long, long time and I think it's good to have it on Linux as well. Now, less good news, YouTube has announced that it's launching a global effort to crack down on ad blockers. Uh, despite the ongoing investigation in the EU on the means YouTube is using to detect ad blockers and block users from watching videos, uh, and despite all the potential issues on whether it's right or not to prevent users from using an ad blocker on their own devices, YouTube is doubling down on this thing. They said to The Verge that they are launching a global effort to encourage users to allow ads or to try YouTube Premium. All of this is in air quotes because the real meaning of this is we're launching a global effort to fight adblock. Now, this all started on YouTube as a small experiment. You know about it, probably you've already been confronted with it. It's a giant pop-up that tells you, hey, you use an ad blocker, you have three free videos that you can watch, or you're done, uh, either you disable your ad blocker or you subscribe to YouTube Premium, but if you don't, you're done, you can't watch YouTube anymore. This was a small experiment at first, but it really looks like it's going to be the default experience for everyone. Uh, users of Adblock will definitely not be able to watch YouTube anymore in the future. YouTube also maintains that using an ad blocker violates the platform's terms of service, which again might be considered a illegal clause of the terms of service in the EU because it basically restricts how a user can use their own devices. Uh, and YouTube also says that it harms creators. The sad fact is that ads on YouTube have gotten more and more intrusive, longer and longer. There are more and more ads on YouTube videos and they're more just, just annoying than ever. So the whole experience on YouTube has 
gotten worse for a lot of people. So now you can expect either more ads because YouTube will feel emboldened, like, hey, you know what? You have to disable your ad blocker. And if everyone has to disable their ad blockers, then yes, we can spam you with ads. You don't have a choice. Where are you going to watch your videos? And you can also expect your ad blocker to not be working on YouTube, basically. It's just not gonna work. Uh, unless maybe you're using something like Piehole, maybe saving Sportmaster and its ad blocker at the system-wide level might not be detected by YouTube's method if it's not an ad block extension. Not sure if this would go around YouTube's detection method, but they're worth a try. Anyway, I think it's a counterproductive move. I think YouTube, uh, YouTube Premium is pretty good. I think it's a very good service. If you need the music streaming service. If you don't need the music streaming service, then YouTube Premium is just way too expensive. I think in France, it's like 13 bucks, 13 euros per month. And it's way too much if you just want to not have ads. If you want the YouTube streaming music thingy, then yes, it's good because you would basically pay 10, 10 or 11 euros per month for something like that on another service. So adding three bucks per month to block ads on YouTube, really good value. But if you don't need the streaming service, then it's way too expensive. And I think that people will not be encouraged uh, to pay 13 bucks. They will probably just watch less because the experience will be so annoying that it will end up hurting creators and YouTube in the process. And my thinking is YouTube probably wants people who would not watch without adblock to just go away because they are generating server load without generating money. So they're probably happy with people watching a bit less and the people watching actually watching the ad. I think as a net result for YouTube, it's gonna be a positive because even if they lose a certain number of views, the views they will retain will be monetized views. So they're gonna reduce server load, they're gonna pay less for viewers that did not contribute financially. But for creators, it's probably not gonna be good because your number of views will be lower, especially in our communities like Linux, privacy, open source, stuff like that, where people are very mindful of their privacy, of ads, they probably just will stop watching entirely instead of just disabling their ad blocker or paying. So this probably won't hurt giant creators that make entertainment content. People will just keep watching Mr. Beast and suffer through 10 ads. Uh, but I think for channels like mine, like privacy related stuff, it will not be a good thing at all to enforce the removal of ad blockers. Okay, and let's finish this with the gaming news. First important piece of news, the 3D engine used in the game War Thunder is now being open sourced. Uh, the engine is named the Dagor engine and it belongs to the Gaijin Entertainment Company. It's now moved to the BSD3 clause license. It's early steps apparently for this open sourcing process. There is still no documentation at all or virtually nothing. There are only build instructions for Windows but still, it's open source. It can be used by other operating systems if people have the courage and the skills to try and make it run there. It's going to be open for other games to be built upon it. And it looks like a very solid engine, at least visually. War Thunder, War Thunder can be a very pretty game. I don't know in terms of how it works and how accessible it is to develop stuff, of how the performance works, but at least visually, it can produce very nice results. And it's probably not open sourcing to abandon this engine, like, oh, we're not going to use it, like, let's drop it, because the game itself is still very popular on Steam. It's still generating probably a lot of money in terms of microtransactions for the editor. So 
One might expect the company to actually want some contributions to their engine and to give back to the community. That's pretty cool to see. So that's one more engine that skilled developers will be able to use to build cool games. That's nice. Uh, we also had the release of Wine 8.19 this week with an updated Mono engine to run .NET applications and some more work on this old Direct Music API. It also brings 44 bug fixes, including for games like Neverwinter Nights 2, for Serious Sam the Random Encounter, for Dungeon Keeper 2, for Rise of Nations, for Myst 5, or for Unreal 2. So, pretty sizable release of Wine. And finally, the Steam Deck now hits 12,000 games, either playable or verified. That's more than 4,000 verified games that will play perfectly on the Steam Deck and, by extension, perfectly on any Linux distro, and more than 8,000 games marked as playable, so they will run decently on deck with minor UX problems because the UX is not adapted to such a small screen or a controller, and they probably will all run perfectly on any other normal Linux PC. And there are 3,500 unsupported games that definitely cannot run on the deck, but some of them might work on a more general Linux distro if they've been marked as unsupported because the performance is bad on the Steam Deck, but it might not be bad on another PC, or the interface just doesn't work at all with the controller, but that won't be a problem on a normal PC with a keyboard and mouse. So that's a huge library of games for this little handheld. It's probably more than anyone has the time to play in a whole lifetime, and it's always so impressive to me to see Linux gaming getting so big and, and so seamless. Like you install Steam, you install your game, you hit play and it works. I remember the old days when I was using like Ubuntu 6.06 or even 10.04, you had to run each game with just Wine. There was no DXVK, you used the DirectX translation layer inside of Wine, which was not as good, let me tell you that. Games either didn't play at all, or they played with major performance problems, major graphical glitches. We've come so far on this that it's still absolutely amazing to me. I haven't used Windows to play a single game since I started this whole channel almost six years ago. I play everything on Linux, and it is still impressive to me. And it's probably impressive to a lot of people, because with the Steam Deck, that's a lot more Linux gamers in the wild. So. This will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, there are links to all the articles I used to make this show in the show notes. If you want to support the show and keep it going, there are plenty of links in the show notes as well to help support it. And if you want to test our sponsor Thunderbird, it's really awesome. There's also a link to that in the show notes. So thanks for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!